The other day, I was out for a walk in the woods, wearing snowshoes. Uh, not for the sake of fashion or anything, just because there was a lot of snow on the ground. So I was out walking, and the woods were all a flurry, and it was beautiful, and it reminded me of the coming-of-age chapter in The Magic Mountain, which I don't know if you've read. It's too long for me to read to you in one sitting. So I sat down against a tree, and I waited for the, a big hallucination or moment of clarity or revelation. But instead, I just got cold. So I got up and carried on walking. And I was a little bit disappointed in myself for not having that big revelatory moment. And started to try and come up with a literary experience upon which I might project my immediate experience. And I stumbled mentally onto this one. So, good evening. It's the 12th of March, 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. In a Hole by George P. Eliot I am in a hole. At first, I did not want to get out of the hole. It was a sort of relief to be in it. In my city, we are prepared for cataclysms. You cannot be sure which kind of destruction is going to catch you, but one or another is pretty sure to. In fact, I am lucky. I am nearly forty, and this is the first one to catch me. Properly speaking, I am not caught yet. For I am still alive and not even injured. When I first came to in this hole and realised what had happened and where I was, I had no impulse to get out. I was afraid of finding the city in rubble, even though I knew we were a tough people and would rebuild it as we had done more than once before. My first thought was, caught at last. Perhaps the shock had stunned me. In any case, I certainly felt relieved of anxiety. My worry about how and when trouble was going to find me was over. Our city is great and strong Yet when it was founded over 300 years ago, our forefathers were warned against the location. We are at the tip of a promontory at the extreme west of the continent, situated on a geological fault. Typhoons rake us. The land is sterile. Everything worth having must be brought to us from outside. Our people are immigrants dissatisfied and ambitious. We have not brought many of our ancestors' myths with us. We are eager to rid ourselves of customs. We are unruly and rely on police to keep us in order. No matter how rich we are, no matter how hard we work, we are always overcrowded. Despite the researches of our dietitians, we have many nutritional ailments, new ones springing up among us as fast as the old ones are cured. Perhaps the hardships of our location have tested us and made us tough. 
and our founding fathers knew this would be the case. They were stubborn in choosing this raw location. We question their wisdom. We grumble. We analyse the possibilities. But we do not seriously complain. We have no real intention of rebelling. Even if we did, it is dangerous to say anything but what is expected. We are too rich from trade. We are richer than we can explain. We are envied by outsiders who do not appreciate the extent and nature of our troubles. They have no idea how troubling it is not to know when and how you will be caught. One can never forget it here for long. Perhaps because of our difficulty with food, threats are always alive in our minds, ready to leap at us. No matter how much we eat, no matter what our dietitians do, no matter what chefs we import to make our food savoury, we suffer from malnutrition. We are fat and undernourished. The stupid are luckiest, for they do not know they lack. The wise suffer most. There are a few who make a virtue of fasting and austerity. They say they are at peace, but I have never seen one look me in the eye when he said it. They look up at the sky or out to sea, and talk of love and peace and truth. Their strict diet makes their skin rough and scaly. Their nails thicken and turn blue. Their eyes become vague. They do not bother people much. Nobody cares enough to restrain them. We keep on trying to improve our diet. We hold conferences and symposiums on the subject. It has become the subject of our most intensive experiments. An earthquake caught me. It was quite a severe one, but I don't think it was as bad as the one that killed a third of our people when I was a young man. I was nimble and quick, and came through with nothing worse than a few bruises. In that one great chasms opened, whereas the hole I am in now is not more than twenty feet deep. This one caught me just as I was coming out of the telephone building. I had gone there to argue about a mistake on my bill. They had charged me for two long-distance calls to Rome the month before. Absurd! Neither my wife nor I would dream of talking with anyone at such a distance. Overseas connections are notoriously unreliable, even with our communication system our greatest civic pride, we would be able to talk with the moon if there were anyone there to talk to. Neither my wife nor I have any friends in Rome. It is true that I have corresponded for years with a numismatist in Rome. I collect old coins. But our common interest conceals the profoundest disagreement. I would do much to avoid meeting him in person, should he ever propose such a thing. 
as he has never shown the slightest sign of doing. To him, ancient coins are objects of trade. Their value varies from time to time, but at any given moment it can be agreed upon they are commodities. I would never expose to him the slightest edge of what they mean to me, of the speculations they excite in me. A drachma, which was worth many loaves of bread two thousand years ago, is now worth nothing except to a few antiquarians like me, to whom it means a hundred times more than it did then. I looked at it, unable to comprehend. If I did comprehend, it would cease to be worth even a slice of bread to me. Do all those to whom it is worthless understand something that eludes me? The new marsmatist and I share no language but the code of catalogues. We would not be able to talk to one another face to face, much less over the telephone. And the length of these supposed long-distance calls. One lasted an hour, the other nearly as long. I went to the telephone building to complain, politely of course, but firmly. They had to prove that my wife or I had made such preposterous calls. They said they would find out who it was the call had gone to. Both calls to Rome were to the same number. I saw that they did not believe me. I knew that legally they could not force me to pay if I denied responsibility. All the same, I was not feeling cleanly victorious as I left the building. I was thrown to the street. I remember seeing the façade of the telephone building topple out toward me in one slab, then crack and buckle. When I came to my senses, I was in this hole. There was still dust in the air. I stood up, coughed, and wiped my eyes. The rubble at the bottom of the hole was all small stuff. No boulders or big chunks of material. There was a good deal of light coming down the chimney above me. It could not be late in the day. I had not been out long. I got up, stiff, creaking a bit, but uninjured, and I inspected the hole I was in. It was shaped like a funnel, big end down. The bottom of the chimney was at least five feet above my head, and the chimney itself appeared to extend up another eight or nine feet. The walls of the cone I was in were of chunks of rock propped on one another. To remove one would risk making the whole haphazard structure fall in. I yelled. There was no answer, no answering noise, no noise of any sort. I whistled and shouted. The echo hurt my ears. I collapsed. At that moment I realised I did not want to get out. Not till light returned next morning did my forces rally. Hunger drove me. At first, choked with dust, I suffered badly from thirst. 
But during the night it rained, and enough rainwater dripped down for me to refresh my mouth and rinse my face. Then hunger pulled me up from my lethargy. I determined not to die alone. I would get out if I could. But how? I yelled for help. There was no response. Once I got up into the chimney above me, I would be able to brace myself, back and knees like a mountain climber, and inch my way up. But getting myself into the chimney, that was the problem. The walls sloped back. Only an experienced mountain climber with equipment would even try to climb them. There was nothing else to be done. I would have to build a pile of rocks to climb up on so that I could insert my body into the chimney. I tried to pull one of the boulders free, but it was lodged too tight to budge. Another was as tight. Another. Another. Then one moved a little as I pulled and pushed. But when it moved, there were ominous shiftings in the wall above me, and a stone as big as my fist sprang out from just over my head, narrowly missing me. All the other boulders I could reach were wedged tight. I pulled at the loose one again. Suddenly, half of it broke free, and I fell on my back. It was of rotten stone. It crumbled. I had gained nothing. I complained. If there had been anyone to hear me, I would never have been so self-indulgent as to complain. But I was alone, and not quite hopeless. I stood with legs spread, raised my fists, and spoke in a loud, clear voice, as though I were addressing myself to someone who would have understood me if he had heard me. I have not been unwilling to be destroyed. I know how to resign myself to destruction, but why must I exhaust myself labouring to return to a world which may be in ruins, and where, if it is still standing, I will be even more fearful than I was before? As I finished speaking, a fair-sized piece of stone fell from the wall high above me onto the floor of the hole. I waited to see what else might happen. Nothing happened. I complained again, watchfully. Another rock fell. The sound of my voice was dislodging some of the upper rocks without causing the whole pile to shatter down onto me. I sang, hummed, yelled, whooped, wailed. Nothing happened. I went back to complaining in a loud, clear voice and complete, rather formal sentences. Another rock fell. One of the fallen boulders was too big for me to lift, but I could roll it into place. They were of irregular shapes and would not pile easily and securely. 
I was going to need a great many pieces of stone of this size. I am healthy, and my gardening has kept me in good condition. Nevertheless, I felt myself weaker after each complaining and rock-piling episode, and had to rest for longer and longer periods. My predicament did not allow me to complain mildly. I am reserved by temperament. I tried to hold back, both out of inclination and out of a desire to save my strength. But I found that I could give each complaint nothing less than everything I could muster. I did not dare complain during the night, for fear a dislodged stone would fall on me. In the daytime, I watched when I talked. I could jump to one side in time. I kept trying to figure out which of my words had the power to dislodge the rocks. It must have something to do with vibrations, wavelengths. In our city, we are quite experimental. Even a private citizen like myself is infected with the spirit of experiment. I live off the income from my inheritance. My wife and I love gardening above everything. Our few friends are scattered throughout the city. We make a point of being strangers to our neighbours. Our rock garden at the edge of a cliff overlooking a northern cove is quite remarkable. I am sure it would win prizes and be much visited if we were interested in that sort of thing, but our friends respect our wishes to keep our garden private. And our neighbours, whose gardens are severely arranged and have swept paths, do not notice the perfection of our succulents, which they think of as being no more than cliff plants anyway. Nor do they see any order in the way our paths and stepping stones adapt themselves to the terrain. My wife and I have little use for most of what our city gets excited about. We are inclined to scorn prizes and fashion. I thought I was equally indifferent to the fervour for experimentation. Now, in this hole, I have learned better. The second night... Unable to sleep well because of the discomfort of the floor, I planned experiments to try the next day. I have never heard of anyone who was in a hole like mine. Perhaps these conditions are unique. There are plenty of holes into which our citizens have been known to have fallen. Sometimes they were rescued, sometimes they died before they could be got out. Often, no doubt, they just disappeared from sight as I have done. Perhaps no one else discovered how to dislodge boulders as I did. There must be something exceptional about my voice, though no one has ever commented on it. There certainly is nothing odd about my words. They are just ordinary words used with care. Still, though I am not slovenly in my use of words, Neither am I a poet. I must not let this opportunity to experiment slip from me, even though, since I need all the physical strength I have to pile the rocks up, I must work fast before I give out.
During the night, I planned a series of speeches to try out. I prayed. When our city was founded, many churches were built. Strong, handsome stone structures. Our city had originally been built with walls to withstand the assaults of pirates. To be sure, the pirates were suppressed two centuries ago, and the city grew far beyond the walls, which are now visited by tourists as museum pieces. But our churches, the best ones which look like and once served as fortresses, have been kept in good repair. Services are held in them, the choir schools still function at public expense. I knew many prayers, having been a boy soprano for a few years till my voice cracked. Neither the prayers I recollected, nor the ones I made up, worked to dislodge the stones. I delivered the patriotic speeches memorised by every schoolchild. The salute to the flag, a Constitution Day address... The funeral oration, which had been delivered by our first Prime Minister after the revolution, had established parliamentary government, our oath of allegiance. None of them worked. I gave an exact and full history of how I came to be where I was. I described my condition with scientific accuracy and offered every reasonable hypothesis about why I was doing what I was doing. Nothing happened. I recited a poem, nursery rhymes, a folk tale, the prologue of our constitution. I counted to twenty in Latin. I recited as many of Euclid's axioms as I could recall. No result. I recited a speech from a play I had acted in when I was in college. Actually, I saved this till last, because the speech had become more than the character's words for me. It had come to say what I meant, or at least I had come to mean what it said. The part was a small one. I was one of the lesser court gentlemen. At a crucial moment, the king gives me a vital message. His throne depends on its delivery. Halfway to the nobleman, to whom I am supposed to deliver it, I decide not to. And then the playwright gives me my only important speech, a soliloquy, the great speech of the play. I have no good political reason not to deliver the message. Nothing but good will befall me if I do deliver it. I have never before done such a thing as I am now doing. The longer I try to account to myself and the audience for what I am doing, the stranger my action appears. I labour to find the right words, for my court language is insufficient. Twice in the history of our city, this play one of our classics, has been proscribed because of this speech, which cannot be cut out of the play being its keystone. I recite it now, in my hole. A boulder is dislodged all right, but it almost hits me. It is too large for me to lift to the top of the pile I have made. Worse, it comes from the mouth of the chimney above, enlarging it. 
so that now I must build up my pile even higher than before in order to be able to brace myself in the chimney and work my way out. I have to use our language in my own way. I have to speak for myself. I am in a hole. I want to get out. I don't know what I shall find when I make my way back into the city. I long to see my wife. If she is still alive and well, she will care for me while I recuperate. If she is injured, I will do what I can for her. The stones are heavy. After I put one up into the pile, my muscles do not leave off trembling until I raise my voice to talk another rock down from the jumble above me and then hoist it into place. Each time after such effort, the trembling penetrates into me deeper. I fear I will not have strength to work my way up into the chimney once I have got myself into it. I want to cry, but I must save my strength for words. I do not know why I am here. I did nothing to deserve being thrown down here alone and abandoned. So the rocks fall. What would happen if I did not pretend someone is listening to what I say? I know, of course, that no one hears my voice, but I speak as though I were being listened to. It must be that which gives my voice the right wavelengths to dislodge the stones. It obviously is neither the words themselves nor their arrangements. My experiments have removed these possibilities. In the interests of exact knowledge, I should complain without audience. I know well enough that I have no audience. Not a sound from outside has reached me. But I cannot imagine doing anything so unreasonable as to complain without any audience at all. Even though that is what I am in fact doing. Besides, suppose when I did that all the rocks should fall in on me at once. If I had more strength, I would take the risk. I would try to imagine myself as I am. Meanwhile... I had better get on with my complaining while I still have strength and time. 